Hello, and welcome back to WVU Reads, the podcast of the WVU Humanities Center. I'm Jeff Hilsebeck. We're back after a brief hiatus. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We are coming to the end of our semester-long discussion of this year's campus read, Educated, a memoir by Tara Westover. And I'll be back in the studio next week to record the final episode, and I'll talk then about what the podcast will look like next semester. But let's finish up with Educated. So today I have here Dr. Melissa Scherfinski, Associate Professor of Early Childhood and Elementary Education, and she's going to help us better understand Tara Westover's experiences of school You probably couldn't see me, but I was putting very large air quotes around that word school before Westover goes off to BYU. Sometimes, after I've taught a good class, or it's a beautiful day on the quad, or I'm in the library, or I've just been to a particularly thrilling talk, I think to myself, God, what uh, what a privilege it is to be working in education. Often, when I leave the prison, Having spent two hours talking about a book with a group of people whose access to books and classrooms and conversation and to all the feelings that accompany those things, feelings of freedom and joy and strength, is so limited, I think, gosh, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to devote my life to learning. But that's wrong. Education isn't a privilege. Education is a right. It's a human right. And Tara Westover was denied that right for her entire childhood. She was lucky in certain ways. She had an older brother who pushed her to get educated. There were some books in the house, some of which, those 19th century Mormon tracts, would turn out to have a profound influence on her. She was in a house where ideas mattered, and she had a kind of innate curiosity, a hunger, and a drive that led her eventually to leave her house and and go on and get educated. But a lot of people aren't even that lucky. Schools can be oppressive. That might be the only thing I agree with Gene Westover about. They are not necessarily so. They're Gene and I part ways. But they definitely can be, and too often are. I felt that, and I went to a very nice high school in the leafy northern suburbs of Chicago. The school, though, looked more like a factory than a place of learning. The hallways ran around the outer edge of the building, which meant that the classrooms, which sat nestled inside the hallways, didn't have windows. Our movements were policed. You needed a pass to be in the hallways or common areas when class was in session, for example, and maintained by a system of bells. For many high school students, that policing is significantly worse. Much later, I taught in a very fancy boarding school in Massachusetts. There, students' movements were freer, but the culture was, in a lot of ways, even more oppressive than at my high school. There was a right way to dress, a right way to talk, a right way even just to be in those spaces. So I'm wondering if today, if if we can set up systems that turn schools from forces of oppression to places of liberation— John Dewey certainly thought so. Westover opens her book with a quote from John Dewey, who was an important American philosopher, and whose ideas about teaching and learning have had profound influence on a lot of people. Um, In the quote, Dewey characterizes education as a, quote, continuing reconstruction of experience. What does that mean? What is it exactly that we have a right to when we have a right to an education? 
Dr. Melissa Scherfinski teaches a range of undergraduate and graduate courses for the development of pre-service and in-service teachers and teacher educators. She also mentors Ph.D. and E.D.D. candidates. Dr. Scherfinski's current research project was recognized as a semi-finalist in the National Academy of Education Spencer Foundation Postdoctoral Fellowship Competition. In this work, she uses a technique called video-cued multi-voiced ethnography to gather stakeholder interpretations of universal pre-K curricula and pedagogies in local settings. The findings from this research will have bearing for teachers, curriculum, developers, and teacher educators interested in understanding how better to meet the educational needs of Appalachian children, families, and communities. Dr. Scherfinski, welcome to WVU Reads. Thank you. I thought I would open just by reading from the book, just to remind people who uh, may have read it a while ago, about what the environment is in which Tara Westover is, quote-unquote, homeschooled. So this is in Chapter 5. Westover writes, There had been a time when Tyler was a boy, when Mother had been idealistic about education. She used to say that we were kept at home so we could get a better education than other kids. But it was only Mother who said that, as Dad thought we should learn more practical skills. When I was very young, that was the battle between them. Mother trying to hold school every morning, and Dad herding the boys into the junkyard the moment her back was turned. She stopped talking about us getting a better education than other kids. She began to echo Dad. All that really matters, she said to me one morning, is that you kids learn to read. That other twaddle is just brainwashing. Dad started coming in earlier and earlier to round up the boys until, by the time I was eight and Tyler sixteen, we'd settled into a routine that omitted school altogether. Mother's conversion to Dad's philosophy was not total, however, and occasionally she was possessed of her old enthusiasm. On those days when the family was gathered around the table eating breakfast, Mother would announce that today we were doing school. She kept a bookshelf in the basement, stocked with books on herbalism, along with a few old paperbacks. There were a few textbooks on math, which we shared, and an American history book that I never saw anyone read except Richard. There was also a science book, which must have been for young children, because it was filled with glossy illustrations. It usually took half an hour to find all the books, then we would divide them up and go into separate rooms to, quote, do school. I have no idea what my siblings did when they did school, but when I did it, I opened my math book and spent ten minutes turning pages, running my fingers down the centerfold. If my finger touched fifty pages, I'd report to mother that I'd done fifty pages of math. Amazing, she'd say. You see, that pace would never be possible in the public school. You can only do that at home, where you can sit down and really focus with no distractions. Mother never delivered lectures or administered exams. She never assigned essays. There was a computer in the basement with a program called Mavis Beacon, which gave lessons on typing. So that's a pretty humorous depiction of her education, although... It seems to me fairly problematic also, but I'm, I'm curious what your reaction to that. Right. And so I think in Tara's book, she really tries to talk about both the constraints and affordances of her education. And so when I think about that passage in particular, I think a lot about what's missing. And so there are many things, obviously, I mean, scaffolding and support for Tara, but also for all of her siblings. 
her parents' understandings of how learners develop mm-hmm. are not there. Intentionality and planfulness mm-hmm. um, related to their educational program is missing. And there's really a lack of accountability mm-hmm. um, for the outcomes of the children. And so maybe even more problematic is a real lack of critical engagement with differences. Hmm. They're alone in a home together, but Tara says that she doesn't even always know what her siblings are doing if they're doing anything. Right. And so, I mean, there it's difficult to reflect on one's life, to play, to learn, to grow and flourish, to think freely, and to understand different philosophies of knowledge and the stories they guide, and to relate with many people, to understand injustices, history, humanity, science, and so, well, there, there is that illustrated uh, science <laughs> book for young children. That's true, but that's mm-hmm. that's that's one, right? Yeah. And so, there's so much that could be there potentially yeah. that isn't. And so, also, I think in that passage, but also in the book in general, the focus of each child as an individual, yeah. ironically, is missing, hmm. right? I mm-hmm. mean, we tend to think with homeschooling, it is potentially a great opportunity for each child to have their needs met. Right. But I think in the larger narrative, there's a lot of focus on the parents themselves. Mm-hmm. And their needs, um, yeah. for instance, um, needs for for labor or yeah. help with the herbalism business, and not so much attention to what each child really needs. And at times, there is an intense focus on one child, for example, Luke, um, who really struggles right. with learning um, to the detriment of the other children, right. right? And then eventually, the parents just kind of give up. Right. And so, you know, obviously the parents don't have pedagogical knowledge um, in the ways that a public school educator or any professional educator would have. Yeah. But it's it's interesting to think about this, I think, in relation to some of the privatizing movements in education, mm. right, as we struggle with teacher shortages and we have programs like Teach for America coming in right. where we have folks who are very, um, very bright and well-educated in um, humanities areas or science areas coming in and doing a short-term stint um, in the public schools and so they um, they have strong content knowledge um, but they have very little pedagogical knowledge yeah. right and so um, you know if we think about Tara's parents even in relation to teach for America teachers they really don't have that yeah, and that's so a, that is a fascinating connection to me and I, I never would have made that and I it seems to me I mean I I I understand the ways that Teach for America is very problematic, and I hadn't mm-hmm. really thought about this, but it seems like by putting it in this context, it's helped to understand the ways in which Teach for America is sort of participating in the larger sort of deprofessionalization or casualization of teachers Absolutely. and educators. Absolutely. And so also, in in the way of um, Tara's parents thinking um, and kind of, you know, removing themselves um, from, from the broader community in a lot yeah. of ways, um, they're missing opportunities for public wraparound services that are sometimes mm. available. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's um, in a, connection, what are wraparound services? Sure. So in connection with 
with um, public schools. Um, sometimes there are counseling services provided mm -hmm. for families, medical supports provided mm -hmm. for families. There are um, services such as Birth to Three and Head Start, which could be really helpful for families in showing them how to promote early literacy skills and how to support kids like Luke, who might really yeah. be, be struggling with those really um, early literacy skills to potentially prevent yeah. um, some of the challenges that they could have later on. And so, I mean, there is a tension for families there because um, a lot of those uh, services actually will push into the home, right? Yeah. And if you don't mm -hmm. want people pushing into your home, right. then you don't have those potential yeah. Benefits. Yeah. So I think all of that is really challenging. Um, would you, sorry, I want to interrupt for one mm -hmm. second and, and loop back to something you said. Yeah. You were sort of connecting homeschooling and, and the Westovers to the sort of larger effort at privatization. Yeah. What's the connection there? Well, I think that homeschooling, if I mean, some people would probably argue that at many points in the narrative, they're not even homeschooling, they've kind of given up on yeah. that. Um, but I think that um, that in the literature, homeschooling is sometimes called the ultimate in privatization, okay. because folks have have really, to the greatest extent possible, pulled away from um, connections with the government and the yeah. larger public mm -hmm. um, in terms of education. And so, I mean, it is interesting, I think, to think about um, homeschool regulations in the United States. And I'm not sure to what extent um, people in general are aware that those vary greatly from state to state. Yeah. And so currently, um, Idaho has some of the most lax homeschool regulations in the country. Okay. Um, basically, there is no oversight for homeschooling in the state of Idaho. Mm -hmm. And so um, in West Virginia, um, depending on the situation, you may present an annual portfolio of the child's work, or they might engage in standardized testing mm -hmm. to make sure that there is some level of accountability. Okay. So in West Virginia, we have more accountability. In Idaho, there's much much, much, much less. Yeah. And so I think that that does affect um, the context of homeschooling uh -huh. um, to a degree. And it explains to some degree um, why Tara's parents um, may have given up. Yeah. Now, it wasn't always that way, though. Mm -hmm. um, there was tighter accountability, um, especially prior to 1992, which interestingly was the year that the Ruby Ridge standoff oh, okay. occurred. Yeah. Um, and so, which just, is so fundamental to the Westovers, particularly Gene Westover's entire understanding of himself. And, and exactly, exactly. And so, the Weaver family, the family um, that. Um, was part of that that's 11 days standoff um they were homeschoolers um and so um there is that kind of blurring yeah. i think in the narrative between the weaver family and the westover family um but up until 1992 um school districts could compel 
um, homeschooling families to show that their program of study was in line yeah. with what the public schools were doing. Um, and over time, there were a series of, of um, lawsuits and such, and the laws began to change yeah. um, up until 2009 um, when the laws became what they currently are. Yeah. So it's very interesting if you think about the, the trajectory of, um, of kind of um, accountability and trying to do homeschooling yeah. versus kind of giving up and how that might fall against the timeline yeah. of um, homeschooling laws in Idaho. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's, that's so useful because it's, it's one of these instances in the book where there is this larger social context that Westover doesn't, um, doesn't describe and, and maybe doesn't recognize. In, in that same passage that I read, she talks about her older brothers. So she says the older boys, Tony, Sean, yeah. and Tyler, had been raised in a different decade, yeah. and it was almost as if they'd had different parents. Their father had never heard of the Weavers. He never talked about the Illuminati. He'd enrolled his three oldest sons in school, and even though he'd pulled them out a few years later, vowing to teach them at home, when Tony had asked to go back, Dad had let him. So, yeah, that, 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 that connection between the Westovers, the Weavers, and homeschooling, um, and, and, and the sort of fear of government encroachment mm -hmm. is sort of present in the book, but yeah. we don't get the, con the context that you're providing. Yeah. So. I wanted to go on a little bit, too, Good. and talk about what is redemptive. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot that's missing in, yeah. in this school yeah. environment. And I did want to make one more point about it, though, that, oh, yeah. to loop back to something else you said, which is that um, Westover kind of characterizes, and we are characterizing her, uh, the, the decision to remove them from school as Phil uh, philosophical, you know, that mm -hmm. Gene Westover in particular mm -hmm. has these sort of philosophical differences mm -hmm. uh, with the U.S. government. But there's also, and, and you mentioned this, mm -hmm. a sort of purely economic reason. Yeah. I mean, he he has them working in his scrapyard. Right. He needs the labor. Right. They're fairly poor. Right. And then they're also working for her mother developing the tinctures so right. there's you know just a couple uh, pages later we hear about how richard is supposed to help his mother mm -hmm. you know develop her potions and instead mm -hmm. he goes down to the basement oh. and reads the encyclopedia in the dark because he has yeah. this incredible hunger yeah. for knowledge yeah. right. so that's a kind of pressure that's put on the family that i think it's important to acknowledge definitely yeah definitely and so um so okay so now what's what's good about this <laughs> as, as as a homeschooling environment yeah or, or redemptive and so again i don't think this is an ideal homeschooling environment by any means but if we want to think about this idea of problem solving in some ways because of the constraints mm -hmm. Of the situation, we see Richard in the basement with his flashlight trying to read the encyclopedia, right? Right. I mean, he finds that space. He pushes himself, and he learns how to navigate and negotiate mm -hmm. those spaces, as does Tara. Yeah. And that comes in handy sometimes, right? Yeah. When you're a doctoral student, right? right? I think we've both been through mm -hmm. that. Um, and you really need to rely on yourself. Yeah. The affinity um, for the land and mm -hmm. animals, um, we see quite a bit, relatively little screen time. Yeah, right. They, they do read religious texts. They grapple independently with what they don't know, mm -hmm. oftentimes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Tara Westover talks about reading mm-hmm. these old, these old, this sort of old Mormon literature. Right. Right. And struggling to have the patience to read what she doesn't understand. At right. First. Right. And that eventually becomes the topic of her dissertation, right. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, they follow their own interests to a degree. Um, and that's good. I believe so. I do too. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the time is used flexibly for education. Um, although, again, that, that competed with um, the use of the children's bodies for labor. Um, there wasn't a constant pressure around competition, mm-hmm. um, extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Mrs. Westover wasn't really a helicopter mom. <laughs> um and so um, I also thought about the fact that potentially this story could be redemptive in a sense for public educators. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is that um, sometimes when we're, we're teaching out in the schools um, as public educators, um, it can be easy to look at our students and their families kind of glass half empty yeah. um, and look at them in kind of a deficit perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like I just went full on deficit perspective <laughs> earlier um, in, mm-hmm. in my talk here. But really, if we look carefully mm-hmm. and we listen very carefully to Tara, I think that we do see that there are some what what is often called funds of knowledge or the knowledge that Tara possesses and that her family possesses. And I think potentially that could help us to understand the students and families that we work with Mm. better. Mm -hmm. Um, To to recognize knowledge as knowledge and not assuming that knowledge, you said funds of knowledge, right? That, 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 That there's knowledge and skills that kids might be learning that we wouldn't necessarily, an educator might not necessarily at first recognize as sure they might skills. They might not match up necessarily to the prescribed curriculum of right. schooling, right. Um, but they're important knowledge and skills sometimes that if you recognize them as an educator, you can use them as a resource yeah. in the curriculum, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm. And help the kids to really kind of understand and connect, right? Yeah. This is very Deweyan. Um you know, it, it is a kind of um, culturally um, responsive, potentially, um, way of educating. Yeah. And so it's, it is also very important, I think, because many families actually um, travel in and out of public schools like the Westovers mm-hmm. did. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, when we think of homeschooling families, sometimes we think, okay, they've never set foot in a school, in right. a public school, um, but that's just not true. Right. Most families actually will come in and out, in and out. Right. And so it's really important, I think, for, for educators to be... aware and to be educated themselves about the context of homeschooling. Um, You know, Tara's book, I think it can be helpful, but I think even much more broadly, because this Mm -hmm. is obviously only one case. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's kind of exceptional. I mean, listening to you talk about some of the advantages to this environment, I'm struck by the way in which it's, it's ultimately pretty good for her and for Richard and for Tyler, all of whom go on to get PhDs. And so, they are obviously incredibly driven yeah. people, right, with this with this kind of hunger yeah. for knowledge. For Luke, who you brought mm-hmm. up earlier, it's really not a good environment because there isn't any 
support. There's no expert who can come in who you know is is knows how to treat these kind of early literacy problems. And right. so he really struggles in that environment. Right, exactly. Yeah. I found something you said. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to read that. And this, I think this also speaks to what you were just describing in terms of teachers, professional educators, mm-hmm. understanding their better understanding the students that they, that they serve. So you said, I want them, speaking of future teachers, to understand the power that they possess as a teacher and specifically the power that their beliefs hold over what they may and may not see, understand, and act upon about the children they teach and the families that they work with. So that's kind of what you were describing, Mm -hmm. right? And I was thinking about that in the context of this book. Mm -hmm. Like, again, thinking of Faye and Jean as teachers and in the ways in which they don't see, or I don't, you know, the ways in which obviously their beliefs hold tremendous sway over the ways that they educate or don't educate their children. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you're suggesting that that's, it's a little, obviously a little bit different because they're their parents and their teachers, right? And, and you're addressing teachers specifically, but that, that that's a problem that they don't recognize their children as independent learners who, you know, shouldn't necessarily have the beliefs of their teachers forced upon them. I see quite a difference, actually, between Jean and Faye. I think that Faye is really torn as a woman between the pressures that she feels her husband placing on her um, to provide economically for the family and also her desires to see her children actually learn. Because we see so much in her, especially, I think, or at least I did, um, in terms of of curiosity and and really wanting to learn. And, you know, um, as she develops her her herbalism um, and her business, um, she is a very, very savvy woman. And um, if you remember in in the basement scene with Richard, um, you know, there's um, Tara kind of wonders about her mom. And if if really she was kind of complicit in creating a space for Richard, letting Richard go down there, Mm -hmm. right? Tara certainly was, but um, she felt an affinity, I think, with her mom. Um, And so, you know, I... I really felt like the mom was was constrained in some ways, but that she did on some level see, you know, that curiosity in her children and really want them to have the space to yeah. learn and grow. Um, and I thought it was kind of ironic that Richard actually ended up becoming a chemist, mm-hmm. um, which is very similar. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. different, incredibly mm-hmm. different in some ways because he's embracing science. Right. Um, but also, so, you know, a kind of a, a similar deal to, to herbalism You're in right. the sense that, yeah. right, uh-huh. right, that they, they both work with these chemicals right. and substances. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm not sure that I, I totally read that piece. Yeah in that same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, maybe maybe I am I am kind of forcing a connection that's not there. I just think the book is so much about ideology and, and yeah. when, you, when you talk about beliefs, the beliefs yeah. that we hold as teachers yeah. about our students yeah. um, and, and about our subject yeah. and about ourselves, yeah. that's a 
that's that is ideology at, at work. Oh, and- for sure. We see some of these kind of distance mentors, like um, was the choir director sister um, hmm. sister something, and Tyler yeah. actually brings her up as right. a potential kind of um, you know role model um, for Tara, and he Certainly. says, you know, well, sh- well, she did this. Maybe you need to get right. online and look at BYU's right, homepage, right? right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Tyler was in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a distance mentor for Tara too because he was off at school and she was actually physically sitting in his desk That's right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, doing her work so even though they weren't physically present they were there yeah. but again I mean those are only little glimmers or right. threads right. of what it could have been Yeah. Um, but then you could also argue some of that struggle maybe in the long run was good was good yeah so yeah I don't good I for mean, her yeah, but, not but maybe not for, for everybody. everybody exactly. Yeah. I wanted to ask you another question. So, um, Gene Westover for for Gene Westover, formal education is by nature oppressive, mm-hmm. right? And that's why he rejects it. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there's any truth to that. You know, I mean, maybe not in the ways in which he understands it to mm-hmm. be oppressive, but if there is a way in which formal schooling can be oppressive rather than liberatory oh i i think definitely Mm -hmm. it can and it is Mm -hmm. um and i think that you know we do have so much work to do Mm -hmm. in education in public education private education and so i mean even something as simple as the schedule right Uh so i study early childhood Uh education um, and i have a a colleague, Kung Ha Lee, at the University of Georgia, who's done um, some video work with kids who are um, labeled with um, having ADHD, mm-hmm. attention deficit hyperactivity mm-hmm. disorder. And so um, she's videotaped their interactions with their peers and with teachers and kind of juxtaposed that against their schedule. Okay. And the schedule literally changes like every five minutes. Hmm. The children are expected to do something new, something different. And, you know, John Dewey probably, you know, would would have a heart attack if he he saw that, right? Because it's, it's very top down and the children aren't allowed to even settle into an activity um, and really start to engage with that activity. And so, you know, her argument there is that it's almost like the school and the schedule have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and not the child, but they're, they're placing that. Yeah within within the child and so i mean yeah there are some really important questions i think that that this brings up but i i do still believe and i think that um that most people do believe that you know our biggest hope definitely for the kind of education that i think we we want to have is mm-hmm. within the public school yeah. and yeah. The, the vast majority of, of kids are educated in public oh, schools yeah. right it's really a, a very small yeah. uh, population yeah. that yeah. is homeschooled or yeah. private schooled. about three uh-huh. percent nationally uh-huh. yeah I think there is this idea, this narrative, mm-hmm. that public education is broken, which seems wrong. I yeah. mean, it, it does that doesn't even make sense as a mm-hmm. thing to say because there's so many schools and they're all different, right? Um, and a, a lot of them are very successful, I yeah. think. And even within schools, every mm-hmm. classroom 
is different. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a lot of opportunity for us to all work together and turn that narrative around, yeah. even in the media. I do know some teachers around the area, even. I'm thinking of, of some teachers in Fairmont who are wonderful crusaders. They always keep their eyes open for some of the really wonderful things that they're doing with the community, like yeah. related to literacy, book drives, and they make sure that that gets out into the local papers. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, that that's the answer, but no, I but think that's that that's part of, part of, part of it. Part of it, mm-hmm. definitely. Counter- Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.